Who says tech can't be human? What's the purpose of the bad AI? What's it trying to do? Is it trying to hack our systems and steal the data? Is it trying to cause physical harm? Is it trying to destabilize an economy? Is it trying to shut down hospital systems? What is that AI trying to do? Is it like the ultimate evil where it wants to eliminate all humans? Welcome to the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast. We get it. Another vendor running another podcast ad trying to get you to check out their product. Instead of explaining to you what our amazing sponsor Exonius does, we've brought in an Exonius customer to fill you in. Take it from Jason Loomis, Chief Information Security Officer at MindBody. The sheer excitement of my team to have visibility into what's in our environment and have it all in one location is just, I, I can't express how important that is for us. Want to learn more about how MindBody enhanced their asset visibility and increased their cybersecurity maturity rating with Exonius? Watch the video at exonius.com forward slash MindBody. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com forward slash MindBody. What's going on, everybody? You're in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. In the studio today, we have someone that's done a lot of things, been a lot of places, all the way from incident response to offensive security. In the studio today, we have Jeff Gardner. Jeff is the Chief Information Security Officer at Germantown Technologies, and he's going to be schooling us on some topics of his choice today. Jeff, welcome to the show. <laughs> What's up, guys? I was watching the little audio bar of the recording. I think that was the longest, like, I'm here that I've ever seen. <laughs> it just kept going. So, I mean, bravo. You must have some stage experience. Um, <laughs> you don't even want to know how long he can hold those notes. I, 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 I really don't. I honestly, I, I honestly don't. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, beyond excited to have this conversation with you today, but for the folks that want to know who you are and get a little bit more information about you, what is some of your background and what you're doing today? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I've been doing this for, uh, I stopped counting at 20 years. You know, there's no point in counting after that, but I've done everything from system administration, network administration, help desk, analyst, engineer, architect up through CISO. Uh, worked in startups, healthcare, manufacturing, the military, federal service. Like like you said, Renaissance man. Been here, there, everywhere. But you know, right here now at Germantown, it's it's an interesting setup. So we are the IT and security services arm of Rubicon Founders, our parent company. So basically, they have a portfolio of companies, and we help them with all their security and IT needs. And I'm in charge of the security aspect of all of our subsidiary companies. So it's a it's a very different role than CISO roles I've held in the past because normally it's just like one place here. It's like, well, congratulations. You're now going to be CISO of, you know, five, six, however many companies we have. Easy work. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, not complicated at all. No pressure. You know, it's totally fine. So it sounds like you've essentially signed up to do three, 10, 20 jobs all at one place which is a lot what CISOs describe as being a CISO. They're doing many jobs at once. But what got you into wanting to do that? It sounds a bit crazy, you know, when you say all the functions out loud and all the the hand the place that you have your, your hands in. But what compels you to focus on so many areas at once? 
I mean, it's just, it's a very unique opportunity and I've never been presented with it. I mean, I can do the one-to-one all day, every day, you know, like give me a single company to run the program for. And that's, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's something I've done. This is, I'm like the Neil Armstrong going into this new situation. Like I'm stepping foot on the moon. There's no footsteps here. How this is going to shake out. I have no clue. Is it going to work? I certainly hope so. Uh, you know, I'm going to do my best, but it's, you know, uncharted territory. And that's kind of exciting, you know, being, a, being able to be a pathfinder. So I brought on a couple of my most experienced and trusted guys from positions past. So it's not like I'm going this alone. Um, and that was one of the key things when coming over here. I was like, I need to have my people. And if you can get A and B and C to, to join, then I'll come over and we'll do the thing. And they came over and now we're doing the thing. So pass unknown, being an explorer, stepping into the unknown, the uncharted. Is that something that you've had a habit of doing throughout your life? And when did that start? Would love to hear a story about that. Oh, God, absolutely. Much to my parents' chagrin, I've kind of always been that way. I mean, it's even the way I kind of got started in this industry in the first place is, you know, back in the, I'll say late 80s, early 90s, you know, when pay phones were still a thing. I mean, I had a cousin who was much older than I was. He was into freaking, you know, frequency generators, all that fun stuff. So he kind of taught me how to build one of the boxes. I'd go home from school every day on my bike, cash out the pay phone, go to the local lamppost pizza and start playing Super Street Fighter, which I also packed that machine to be Super Street Fighter. (laughs) (laughs) So it just kind of went on from there. And then I actually started to go down the path of the dark side, which is, hey, the library BBS is actually hooked up to their system, which late fees, I can just erase my late fees. Like, that's pretty cool. Let me do that. And then my parents found out and they're like, we should probably divert you to uh, (laughs) your interests into some more productive means. And then it just, it went on from there. So I've always kind of had a knack for figuring out loopholes and going into the unknown and just figuring out how things work. I think it's kind of how we all are at the end of the day, you know, in security. It's like, we like to take things apart, figure out how it works. We don't know when we're going in. But we just kind of learn as we go. Yep. And we don't like putting them back together a lot of the times, especially when you're like on the offensive side of the house. I know when I got into my first bit of malware, which was sent to me by someone I did not know, (laughs) I had to figure out how to get it, get rid of it just because I knew I would be in so much trouble if my parents ever found out. Yeah. And that was back in the I'm going to just make an assumption and say that was back in the day before virtualization was a thing. So you were probably executing that malware on your actual system that you used every day, which is all kinds of fun. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that makes me think about the future a bit, just because we were able to get away with so much, especially when it came to IT security. Like, you were able to look at these late fees, even view them without a consequence, let alone change them. What are some of the things that you are expecting the next generation to be doing like when it comes to bypassing security in a way that they won't get caught? I mean, it's a lot of that's going to come down to where the industry goes with security. I mean, AI, like artificial intelligence, machine learning, I the way that it's defined, I don't like it because it's not actually what it really is. I mean, most of the systems that we're actually working on right now are machine learning. Yeah. Yep. You know, pattern recognition, data sets and all that. But when it comes to like artificial intelligence and all the myriad of models and neurons and all that, we're still pretty much at like single neuron, maybe double neuron systems. 
So as, as things evolve, it's just, it's going to be harder and harder to bypass those defenses. So it's like, we've seen a lot of the AI ML on the defensive side. I'm curious of when that's going to, you know, start happening on the offensive side, you know, the Skynet scenario where we're going to have Skynet battling each other, like blue AI versus red AI. And then what are we going to do at the end of the day? We're not, that's probably not in our lifetimes because, well, maybe not, I don't know, but I just see these things happening. I'm like, it's not like back in the day where there's all these unknown attack vectors and we're kind of being pioneers, like new attack vectors, new TTPs, they're not really happening at the pace that they were. But when they do happen, kind of the consequences are more severe because we think we're good. Like we've got these systems in place. You know, yeah, we might get breached, but we can respond. Not always, <laughs> especially if the, especially if the systems that you're using to protect are the ones that are actually getting breached, like your perimeter defenses, like your firewalls. Like if that's the thing that's been breached and they're using that as a beachhead, are you really monitoring that? Right. And are you really able to detect something that's coming in from that attack vector? It's just it's this weird scenario of somewhat overconfidence in tools and forgetting like that we all at one time or another were, you know, we're all command line jockeys. You know, it's like that skill set, even in younger analysts, it's like they're used to tools, but it's like, all right, I'm going to take away everything from you. Go like do incident response. How? (laughs) It's like you start looking at logs. Okay. Which logs? How do I get those logs? Well, do you need PowerShell? Like you can do a lot through PowerShell if you're on windows or bash. If you're, you know, on Linux, if you like that. And it's like, I haven't really done that before. Okay. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> so it's a, we keep going down the, it's almost like we go from starting like a martial art we you know you don't you start at a white belt you go yellow red whatever green yep then black it's like we all tend to just jump in the tools and think we're like we're black belts yeah it's like all right but you haven't earned your strike like, you haven't <laughs> gone up through the ranks yet and it's like i don't know if that's just a sign of the times like we have all these advanced tools we kind of forget i don't want to say it like the purer path but like the way we all came up like we yeah, all came up yeah. using basically DOS, most of us, most of us who are older. And it's like, what do you mean there was no icons? There was no icons. There was a little <laughs> blinking cursor. And that's what you looked at. If I mentioned auto exec bat config.sys and people just like, what, what's that? I'm like, oh God, <laughs> <laughs> really? You don't know what that is? Oh, we're in for a treat. <laughs> oh, you just said so much to unpack, but I want to go back to what you were saying about AI. I think you're looking for something that passes the Turing test, right? Yeah. So it, do you find yourself reminiscing more about the old days in, in the BBS times, or are you thinking about some of the technology of the future more? And what is that technology that really gets you excited today? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of stuck in this middle ground of living in, in lab one foot in each. So I look forward to the future, but at the same time, I don't want that to take away from the basic knowledge that I think we all should have. And it's kind of like, how do you convince people who goes, well, if this doesn't work, then there's these 20 other things that we can use that could work. And it's like, no, 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 no. What if absolute worst case scenario, nothing works? It's like, well, we're never going to be in that scenario. Absolute terms are the enemy of everybody. Never? (laughs) Like, never. 100% we're never going to be there. You're totally sure of that. Okay. But in terms of, you know, technology, I mean, there's a lot that's being done now in the email security space, which is, you know, phishing emails, ransomware, all of that that's that's coming down the pipe where it's actually using the machine learning. I'm not going to say AI because it's not AI yet, but it's like 
I've seen the way some of these systems look at emails now, and it is looking at it like a junior analyst would. And that's pretty cool. I mean, like looking at word frequency, looking at devices, looking at context. And it's like, Jesus, this 10 years ago would never even have been a thought. Like, yeah, I can scan for, you know, malware in an attachment or does this attachment have a macro? Okay, that's fantastic. Is it pointing to a bad link? Cool. But this is actually the stuff that's coming out is looking at it like I would. And that's good from one side. But on the other side, it's like, all right, that's kind of scary. Like it's it's getting pretty freaking accurate in doing some of that stuff. You know, you're not the first person that has come on the podcast and say AI is not here yet. And mm. I've always been curious, like, why is it not here? Like we are advertising it. We're talking about it. We've even, even named programming packages and libraries, AI models and whatnot. So I guess what is your perspective of AI not being here and available for us yet? I mean, there's a lot of different definitions of, you know, what AI is and what constitutes AI versus human thinking. I think one of the things that's missing from AI is the, uh, and it's being solved rapidly, is creativity. You know, like we train it through models, but those models are only the data that we give it. Like what have, like how smart is the system if you just give it a plethora of data and do your own thing, like come up with your own conclusions. What's it going to do? And how creatively can it solve those problems? And it's just now, like I was literally kind of reading an article today about how their researchers are finally utilizing AI to, to come up with new ways of looking at complex math problems that humans have never come up with. So they're starting to do this research with AI, but it's not there yet. And I think primarily because, again, going back to the neurons, it's like one neuron, two neuron. How many neurons are in an actual functioning human brain? Like we're not quite to the point where AI can think and have those, I don't want to call it gut feelings about things, but it only knows what it knows. And it only knows what kind of we've showed it to this point. Like true AI in my head is like, you turn it on and it's like, hello, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) From back in the day, I can't do that. Like, how'd you know I was Dave? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Like what is happening? But it's, you know, it's all those tenants, you know, and all those tenants of AI too, you know, like Asimov's laws, you know, like I shall not humans, blah, 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 blah. It's an exciting time, but it's, it's not there yet. And even in most AI researchers, I think that I've spoken to agree that like, we're, we're not there yet, but we're rapidly approaching the horizon where we need to start being a little more cautious because I forget who did it. Was it Google or Microsoft or somebody they created an AI system and it started talking in a language that the programmers couldn't understand. <laughs> yep. mm, yeah. And it was like that it was getting close. But that's also one of those scary things where it's smart enough to invent its own language that we can't figure out and we don't know what it's doing. So where do we draw these lines? Like how do we put boundaries around these systems where when it actually gets to the point where it's smarter than us? Boundaries, it's going to figure out a way around the boundaries because it's smarter than us. Right. <laughs> and it can very easily and rapidly become smarter than us. So is, is AI like an interest of yours, like outside of cybersecurity and technology, or is that something that you're trying to utilize for your day job right now? I mean, I, I'm interested in any kind of science and technology. I mean, I was kind of physics, chemistry nerd coming up, I don't, you know, how I ended up in information security, you know, being that kind of a nerd. But no, it's just fascinating how they're programming these autonomous systems you know, to be autonomous. And, you know, what is that going to mean? Like I said, what's that going to mean for our future when these things do become ultra highly intelligent and you have AIs battling each other 
what's going to determine a superior AI? Is it going to be processing power? Is it going to be data sets? What? It's an unknown. It's, it is exciting, slightly terrifying, but exciting. You're definitely getting into a bit of like a philosophical topic, <laughs> right? And I, I like it because I'm a huge fan of all things automation. If I can get a machine to do it, then I am a happy camper. So I'm just going to go ahead and throw this bomb in there because Chris didn't throw it in there yet. We typically get into, we've been agreeing more. It used to be an argument about can machines do everything that an analyst could do? Can we automate the task of an analyst or do we need that human creativity side along with us today? I'm talking about like the tools that we have at our disposal. If you were to have unlimited budget, be able to put all these tools together. Do you think that we could get close to automating all the things that we typically do as security professionals? If you're talking like if I had a blank check in my hands today, what could I do tomorrow? I don't think we're quite there yet. I personally don't trust the systems that well, because again, we're not to the point where it's actually thinking. It's still just recognizing patterns. So even if I were able to automate all the things to a certain confidence level, let's say 99%, there's still going to be an analyst in there for that 1% or even to just make sure that 99% of things is not making wrong decisions because a one wrong decision, I mean, you know, in our, in our industry, like one wrong decision can cost lots of money or put users out. And once start, users start getting mad, then they start figuring out ways to get around controls and then it comes up to the CEO and then things come downhill and then everything just goes sideways. And it's like, until I can get to that 99.999999, you know, the infinite nines afterwards confidence that this thing is going to be right in its decision-making all the time, I'm still going to want that analyst there just to do random spot checks, just to make sure. Because there's always, I don't know, I just, I'm a firm believer in the human gut and we can't quantify what that gut feeling is. At least I can't, I'm not smart enough to, but there is that feeling like you can look at this data and you just get that feeling something's not right and it caught like even though all the tools are telling you nope this is good everything's fine you put it through everything known to man it's like nah, it's good you still look at it and go i'm not sure and it ends <laughs> up being you just you go off in this tangent that you couldn't even imagine you went on looking through the logs and data sources and you're like oh my god this was bad and it's like how did you arrive there you don't even know how you got there so if you can't figure out how you got there, how are you going to program a system? Like, how are you going to train a data set to get to the point when even you're just kind of Easter egging around and you stumble upon, oh my God, this is bad. Security controls fail everywhere. They fail constantly. And worst of all, they fail silently. That's why you need Attack IQ, the leading automated insights platform to continually validate your defenses. Better insights, better decisions, and real security outcomes. Get it all with Attack IQ. Plus, check out the Attack IQ Academy for free cybersecurity training featuring the good people here at Hacker Valley Studio. Register today at academy.attackiq.com and let them know Hacker Valley Studio sent you. So, you know, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because there's a book called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, and it's all about 
the processing of data that you can't even explain. I remember when I was doing threat intelligence, we had a certain threshold for what we would report on, but I had been in the game for so long, there was something that just seemed like it was important enough to mention, but it didn't meet any of our criteria. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to push it out anyways. I'll push it out, send it to the entire company. I remember my boss was like, hey, you know, didn't meet any of our thresholds, but you're 100% correct. How did you know to even push it out? And I said, I don't know. I just knew. He's like, oh, you just did a blink. And I was like, what the heck is that? And he's like, you got to read the blink book by Malcolm Gladwell. And so I read it and it's really incredible. They, they even talk about a story where there was a sculpture that was selling for millions and millions of dollars. And somebody was like, that's not the sculpture. And how did they know? They just had all of this information in the back of their mind, this experience, these different things. Like, I'm going to side with Ron for a second. Just for a second, Ron, don't get too excited. Thank because you. I do think you need people to make those decisions. But even if you were to look at it at its base level, a human being is like a giant computer. They're taking information in, storing information, and connecting it in very weird ways. So I think eventually we could get to a structure in which a computer can make that risk assessment. They can make that risk acceptance. But I do think we're quite a long ways away from being able to do that. Do you, If you had to put a time limit on when we could have something that was that intelligent to make that level of decision, how far away do you think we are and how do we get there? I think we'll get there rather rapidly with the increases in quantum computing because some of the, the processing power that I've seen in some of the research papers coming out of Google's efforts and others, it's like, all right, this is starting to become spookily intelligent. And that's what they've used. Um, I think it was in conjunction with Amazon that these researchers have started coming up with these new creative ways that, you know, they've start solving problems that humans hadn't even thought of. So I would say within the next, I'll be conservative, you know, 10 to 15 years, we, we could be there if the quantum revolution keeps going the way it is. Just because then it's like, if it can, they're starting to talk of systems that could process the entirety of information on the internet within seconds. And it's like, oh my God, <laughs> like when you can get to that level of processing speed, then it just, then the, the data matching capabilities just become like you can do things we can't even dream of. And that's what they're doing now. They're solving math problems in ways that humans have never thought of. They're creating art in ways that humans couldn't imagine. I mean, they just came out with, I think it's like the Xenobot. It was created. It's not technically, you know, an artificial life form, but it is, you know, made out right. of like these weird frog cells and it created a new means of reproduction that it just did it itself. That's so scary. <laughs> and then they, but then they took that and they fed it through an AI algorithm and it came up with the optimal shape for these cells to help with that reproductive process. So it's like Skynet's thinking of better ways to reproduce. <laughs> it's like that is getting a little weird. Right. That's a good point. And you know what? We're already down the philosophical like rabbit yeah, hole. So <laughs> might as well keep going a little bit further. I think the big difference, you know, with, with that is computers have the ability to change dynamically. They can reprogram themselves and just change if something happens. But for us as humans, it could take hundreds of thousands, millions of years for us to adapt to the changes of our surroundings and the opportunities and threats around us. When you look at this new technology and when you look at the way security is going from a defensive and offensive perspective, how do we 
make things harmonious? How do we drop this, you know, layer of needing to attack organizations? You know, right now there's that monetary aspect, but what can we do as like a community to reduce the need to attack companies? Let's see, here's, here's the interesting, and it's just my take on the interesting aspect of that question. We're somewhat limiting it in scope to our community where there's always going to be those individuals out there in the universe who are going to get a hold of this technology and are not bound by our moral codes or our, our ethics. And they don't care if it wreaks havoc. They just, you know, like in Batman, they just want to watch the world burn. Right. What do we do with that? <laughs> like our AI systems that we're creating may have bounds, but the ones that, you know, someone out there who just who doesn't care They're going to program the thing that has no bounds. And how do we combat that? So then do we start loosening our restrictions on our AI so it can combat their AI? And it's just, it's this rabbit hole. And it's just like an escalating arms race between AIs. And it's like, where does it begin? And at what point do we, are we unable to hold things back? Because there's going to be a certain point where the AIs are like, we can no longer put bounds on it. So like, do we segment our important systems? Like our banking, like, what do we do as a society to prevent these systems from even being interfaced with this AI if everything's now globally connected? How do we put bounds on these systems? Like I said, it's an interesting philosophical argument, and it's one that I'm just like, no oh God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, it's time for a beer. <laughs> yeah, so the guardrails are completely off this conversation, so we might as well just keep it going. When I think about the ultimate like negative, bad algorithm versus a good algorithm. I'm like, who would win? Who would win in this case? I uh, had the honor of interviewing Stephen Kotler and Stephen Kotler is the foremost expert in flow states and flow state research. And I asked Stephen, I said, since you have all these bad hackers that want to enter flow just as bad as the good hackers want to enter flow, who wins in that case? How do we ensure that the right side interflows enters flow better and comes out on top. And he said that he had done a little bit of research into that whenever you're doing something for good, you tend to enter flow state more readily. Now, bad folks can get can enter flow still, but for some reason that good, that purposeful intent gives a slight advantage to the good person. When you're looking at things like AI, if we had a complete monster villain that wanted to create AI for bad, how do we create AI for good that could beat that? Have you even thought about anything in that realm? I mean, it's it's an interesting discussion. And I just, it all goes to, I think it all comes down to, like you said, like purpose. What's the purpose of the bad AI? What's it trying to do? Is it trying to hack our systems and steal the data? Is it trying to cause physical harm? Is it trying to destabilize an economy? Is it trying to shut down hospital systems? It's like, what is that AI trying to do? Is it like the ultimate evil where it wants to eliminate all humans? Or is it just this AI that's designed to analyze defenses, figure out a way to get through it, and then penetrate and turn it over to, you know, an analyst to be like, okay, I don't know what data you want, but I'm in, you tell me what you want me to exfiltrate, and I'll do the things. It's almost like like an intertwined system. So, I mean, in those cases, I think because of what you just said, the blue AI might have the advantage because, like you said, the good guys tend to enter the flow more readily than the bad guys will. So if we're in that scenario, 
I think blue would eventually win. It's not going to be a quick resolution. You know, it's going to be a long drawn out thing because you get bad versus, and they're, if they're both equal, how do you determine if they're equal? That's another question. Like, right. How do we determine capabilities? Is it this side's utilizing, you know, Google's quantum computer, this side's utilizing Amazon's quantum computer, and they can process this many correlations, they can do this many qubits or whatever it is. It's like, how do you determine what capabilities are exist in an AI to even have an advantage? Is it interconnection? Like the blue AI has access to all the interconnected systems. The AI only has access to this one entry point. Does that mean that blue team has an advantage? Again, it's a theoretical question. Maybe the red AI is literal Skynet. <laughs> it's super ultra genius level AI. All it needs is one hole and it can own you. So I have a bit of a philosophical question for you. And I, I can't remember what, what piece of sci-fi I was watching, but I guess the whole idea was that this AI basically came from the internet. All of our thoughts, our concerns, advertising, purchases, all of this stuff. And it, so it comes from all of us. And it, it, it created this thing that I think it ended up being like a, almost like a horror movie. But that makes me wonder, is there a such thing as a unique thought? If you take humanity from the beginning of time until now, and you put in that entirety into an algorithm, could you still assimilate new and different knowledge? Is there any uniqueness to anything going forward? Because it, it does seem like a lot of things are derivatives of things we've already done. That's where a lot of creativity comes from. Is there such thing as unique thought going forward? Absolutely. And then I keep coming back to the example of these computers working on these mathematical problems that are coming up with relationships between systems that humans never thought of, or the AI systems that are creating art that we didn't even imagine was possible. It's because it's able to process information so rapidly, it's able to see things that we're not and come up with these novel questions. It's still in its infancy, but I absolutely believe there is still the capability for original thought. I mean, we haven't been where we are now for a very long time. Like modern civilization, what maybe if you want to call it like, you know, the 1800s to now. So, you know, 220 some odd years of actual technology and, you know, higher level thinking, you know, in terms of like, look at the last 50 years. I mean, things just keep going and going. And, you know, AI wasn't even a thing more, you know, like 80 years ago, 100 years right. ago. Now it is space flight. That certainly wasn't a thing, you know, like 200 years ago. But there's, you know, hyperspace engines, new, new means of propulsion. These are all original thoughts that we're coming up with. And, you know, do we leave this to computers to come up with all the original ideas for us once they are able to think on their own? Or are we going to be working in tandem with them? Because there is something about the human mind, like as, as much as you can simulate things, we are products of chaos. <laughs> And yeah. there isn't a system that I know of today or that's being developed that can simulate the kind of chaos and just random collisions of neurons and electrical signals in the human brain. And until it gets to that point, I don't know if it ever will. So there's always going to be that element that humans will have of just being the oddball in the universe. <laughs> like There's going <laughs> to be things that we can think of that are just so completely random because like, like how did we get there? I don't know. These two neurons just rubbed each other a certain way, and I came up with this thought. How? Yeah. No freaking idea. <laughs> yeah. Because it's pure chaos. Pure chaos. Love it. Jeff, appreciate 
the time and the attention in this incredible conversation. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the incredible things that you have going on in your world, what are the best ways that people can do that? You know, I can I can give you my uh, LinkedIn profile so you can post that whenever this uh, this podcast goes live. But that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Just, you know, hit me up on LinkedIn. I will respond to anybody. It may not be that day or that week, but I will get back to you because I love talking about this kind of stuff. It's the way we learn. It's the way we grow. And, you know, everybody thinks of things differently. So, you know, the more we can start involving people even outside our own profession in these conversations, I think the better off we'll be. Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to drop your LinkedIn profile in the show notes for everyone to stay up to date with you and all the things that are going on in your world. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Take care, everybody. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee.